everyone. Welcome to episode 323 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with photographer Jeff Zayas about innovation and design thinking and how these concepts intersect with landscape and nature photography. I think you'll get a lot out of our discussion today, so enjoy. Before we get rolling, I want to remind listeners that we have officially opened submissions for year three of the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. NLPA is the premier nature photography competition, which we created to provide a platform for photographers looking for a way to showcase their nature and landscape photographs, which have been edited with realism in mind. If you value this type of presentation in your work, then NLPA is your go-to competition. We have lots of rules that other competitions do not have, and we check every single raw file or film negative of every single potential winning image, ensuring that they adhere to our rigorous rules. If you'd like to learn more, please head over to naturallandscapeawards.com to get started. We close entries at the end of July, so time is running out. Best of luck. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Jeff Zayas. Thanks, Matt. It's it's really an honor to be on. I'm a big fan of the show, and you've had amazing guests, so it's intimidating, uh, but also exciting, and I'm humbled. Yeah, no, I'm excited. When you reached out to me with the topic ideas, I was really intrigued by it, so I think we're going to have a great time today. Me too. Great. Awesome. Well, so Jeff, for people that may not know you or be familiar with your photography, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Great. Well, people largely won't be familiar with my photography. Uh, I'm an amateur photographer uh, who has been and still is actually a technologist. So I, I live in California. Uh, I've been here for forever. I've been working here for the past 40 or so years. Basically uh, married, have three adult children, uh, and really wasn't all that interested in photography at all until about five years ago. And I can explain what happened and what changed, but, but don't worry. It's not that I'm currently disinterested in photography. I, I love it. It became a, a passion of mine and, um, that just came through a certain set of circumstances. But what I do for a living is innovation coaching. So what I, what I was talking to you about previously was I actually wanted to see if it was interesting to anyone other than myself, especially someone who knows photography very, very well of some of the innovation practices and how they might apply to photography. Cause I've seen a strong connection the past few years. So that's my connection to photography. I love keeping it honestly as a hobby because my other strong, uh, evocation the thing i keep as a hobby i uh, don't try to make a living at is music and i i discovered years ago when i i started playing lots of music jobs that it kind of ruined the fun for me oh yeah so so uh, you know I, I was literally playing it's like the wedding band problem you know i was literally doing commercial things that kept me from being an actual jazz musician so so with photography i just love uh, keeping it in the corner of, hey, I can shoot what I want and I can process it the way I want. So that's what photography is to me right now. I love it. And so just real quick, tell us, how did you even get interested in photography? 
Yeah, it's, it's a surprising story, at least to myself, which is about five years ago, uh, a team I'm on at work, we're all basically innovation practices, people, coaches, people who work with product teams and focus on, you know, how can we be creative and be customer focused and make better products. I've done that largely within companies over the years. I started at Apple many decades ago, did startup companies, and I've been at Intuit for quite a number of years. So, uh, and, and, and do a little help outside of the company and talking at universities here and there. Um, but largely internal work within a company and a lot of the coaching and the instruction and trying to help, uh, teams do better with customer centric innovation comes down to coaching and learning and development. So teaching. And so a few of us on the team decided that, well, we should get some empathy for what it's like to, as an adult professional, to learn something, to be taught something, and then get a sense of what works for us. So, so different people on the team, like one guy decided he was going to learn the martial arts. So he wanted to, I think it was Kung Fu. And he said, <laughs> he's going to go down to a gym and get an instructor and take classes and then feel like what worked for him. Was it all immersive or the theory or the practice? And just experience what it's like to learn something you don't know at all, you're not good at. And I thought about what I might look into. And it was kind of interesting in that I didn't want to do music because I played music in local bands for decades. And I, I know it, you know, well to a certain extent. And I thought I would have to get a, a certain type of instruction and it wouldn't be a typical thing. And I thought, well, I'm a really bad photographer and I don't really care about it that much. You know, like I'll take some snapshots when we go on vacation. Right. And it seems extremely highly available to go out and get instruction. Like I wouldn't have to go down to some gym. Like I, I was, <laughs> right. I didn't want to do what he was doing. Like I was right. lazier than that. I thought I can probably, I, I think I get all these emails about creative live. I could probably just buy a couple creative live uh, you know, courses or look at YouTubes. I figure that out later. And slightly, it's slightly like, less dangerous than Kung Fu as well. Absolutely. Oh yeah. He ran, he ran into some problems. I could get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> Probably quite a bit less dangerous, uh, except maybe for wave photography, but, it, but anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, so I didn't have much interest really. It, you know, I started, uh, I think I started with, well, looks like there's a creative live course from Kathleen Clemens on flower photography. Hmm. I'll, I'll shoot some of those and my wife might even like the picture, right? And it didn't take too many courses before I, I actually started to really enjoy it. And then it became a lesson for myself in, in fostering passion. Like the more I did it, the more I liked it. And then the real breakthrough, I think the short story would be, I'm pretty sure I, I, I didn't even know what type of photography I liked. I was totally wrong. I thought maybe I would like cityscapes and I, I would go out and have like a mediocre time shooting buildings. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, okay, we have a big vacation to Paris coming up. So I watched a bunch of Serge Ramelli YouTubes on, he's from Paris on like how to use Lightroom to process your Parisian photos, you know, and I, I still didn't really know what I was doing and I sort of enjoyed it. And I was watching, all of a sudden I was watching a Thomas Heaton video. And next thing I knew, like 12 minutes had gone by and I felt really relaxed 
<laughs> and I just really loved what I was looking at. It was almost like the old days of looking at Animal Planet, whatever, like, you know, PBS specials on the outdoors and right. nature. And I, I just had that feeling of, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe I actually like landscape photography. And, and so anyway, I, I started emulating what I was seeing in some of those videos. And that turned out to be the thing I was interested in. And then my passion for photography really took off even more from that point. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's good backgrounds. And I think that'll help inform some of our conversation. So, well, let, let's, let's just dive, dive right in. I know when, when you first reached out, uh, you wanted to share how your innovation background in what you call design thinking has helped you as a photographer. And I would love for you to first just tell us what design thinking is in a nutshell. Yeah. So in a nutshell, an easy way to think about design thinking is to think of it as a framework for problem solving. That's fairly general. So I'll have to describe a little bit more, I believe, in terms of what that really means. But uh, I think uh, a close cousin of problem solving is learning. So design thinking, the way it originated is really all about, hey, look, you know, if you're, if you're applying creativity, if you're solving difficult problems, First of all, be customer centric, like who are you solving the problem for? And it sounds really basic, but if you look at the way a lot of companies operate and a lot of organizations operate, they don't operate that way at all. And we could talk about why for me, it comes from evolutionary psychology. You probably have some things to say about that. It's like, it's actually not the most natural thing for people to, to really have empathy for what they're solving and who they're solving for. So to, Design thinking really emphasizes that. So the way I describe it to people initially is one way of thinking of it is a three prong attack or three sets of principles. The one would be the first to mention is deep customer empathy. So if you're going to solve a problem, do you really understand what the problem is and who you're solving for and what those people or what that person even really cares about? And the, the theory of the case is you actually probably can't solve well at all, unless you're extremely lucky. If you don't really understand what the struggles are and what the empathy for, for those people is. So that's, that's number one, deep customer empathy. Number two would be what we call go broad to go narrow. And what that's talking about is we're fighting this psychology of people like to lock into a solution. And what's even better is if it's your solution. Like we all love our own ideas. So it's like, I love my ideas. What I'm going to do, because I think the way people learn to survive initially was you need to, you've got a saber tooth tiger running at you. You better very quickly arrive at a solution and take action. Otherwise you'll die. Right. Right. So, so our brains lock in, I call it solution lock in. You're going to very quickly lock into a solution. It may be based on a thousand assumptions that are largely bad, but that's what you're good at. You're locking into a solution and then it's all over. That's in terms of that's what you will do. You will implement that solution. What's actually much better to do is you force yourself to go broad and consider a multitude of possible approaches before you then narrow down at some point to actually take action. Right. You okay. will have to narrow down, decide what to do, make a decision, but this is the forcing yourself principle number two, like 
learn to go broad, learn to take a deep breath, step back and consider lots of ideas instead of locking it to one. Yeah, and in my case, what I've found in my professional work, because I do that a lot as I lock in and I'm like a driver and I'm like, let's go, is I have to slow down and I have to ask other people to, okay, what am I missing? Tell me what your ideas are before we go with my idea, you know? <laughs> so that resonates a lot with me. <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? It is, for me especially. <laughs> I think it's it's very difficult for most people. What I've seen is that they're, seems to be some percentage of people who really can slow down and like to flexibly broadly consider lots of things and like to listen to lots of other people and like to spend a lot of time on the problem rather than on the solution. Yeah. But that's a small percentage of the population. It seems it's just not human nature. I agree. Yeah. And then what's the third? The third is rapid experimentation. And in, like we're in a, we're in a business context, but uh, you know, part of what I what I wanted to get feedback from you and where we started conversing was, hey, does this actually apply to photography and art? Because I act actually think I I learned some things where it does in a fairly, to me, in a meaningful way. But in the business context, we talk about it as rapid experimentation with customers. So now you could let's say you've got lots of empathy, you like really understand a problem. You, you've done good problem definition in the context of what people care about. Let's just say a customer cares about. You've gone broad. You've considered all sorts of different solutions before you narrowed in in terms of the things you might experiment with. Now, without experimentation, how do you know what actually works? You're just taking a guess. But if you can rapidly experiment and do inexpensive experiments, so this takes a lot of creativity in its own right. If you can experiment quickly and inexpensively, you can actually learn your way to solutions that work well, rather than the typical thing for an organization, which is to decide you've got a business goal, make an assumption, lock it to the solution, high paid person will assert the solution, go build the solution, ship it, and then complete failure. I have a, um, I have a concept that relates very very well to that is in regards to photography, but I, I want to save it for later because I think it'll tie into one of my later questions and you can ask me about it. But I think mm -hmm. my first, my initial reaction is yes, all three of those things will definitely apply to helping us become much better photographers. So let's continue. Yeah. And I'm curious. I will, I will ask. I'm, I'm very curious about the connection you make too. Okay. Okay. Well, so Let's go back to the concept of deep empathy and let's maybe tell us a little bit about how that might translate in terms of people looking to understand their audience, but also, and potentially more importantly, their photography subjects. So the starting point, like I talked about was, okay, well, design thinking, this is a businessy thing, or at least a, a problem solving thing. And it's a customer centric thing. It, it actually evolved out of, uh, the, the design background of people doing, they used to call it human centered interaction human centered design. So it started with that notion of like focus on a customer. So I initially thought, okay, the connection is obvious. If you're, you know, what you're not asking about, which is you got a photography business. So let's say you're, you're so focused. I, I know it's not. 
let's say your sole focus was just the business end of photography, then getting customer empathy would be obviously applicable because the more you understand who the buyer of your photographic goods or services is, the better, better product or service you would have. Let's leave it at that. What well, connection I didn't make at all initially was, oh yeah, but you know, I want to be an amateur. Uh, I'm an engineer by background. You know, you know, I spent years and years being a software engineer and, you know, and management of that before I, uh, figured out, Hey, I can make a living coaching innovation and driving more of the touchy feely human centered side of things. So how does it, how would this relate in terms of creativity and the artistic aspect of photography? And then what I learned from studying photography, uh, from a lot of these, like we were talking about creative live videos, YouTube right, right. podcasts, you know, there's lots of great ways to, to learn that I, I think we've all discovered at this point, I started hearing people talking about, well, like an artist will not care about the buyer or even maybe the social media feedback of the number of likes or anything like that. It's not about validating externally what somebody else wants from you. It's about understanding yourself and what you authentically care about. And for me, the connection then became, okay, well, what might help my photography, like, yeah, I want to focus on the art. Like I started realizing, okay, what, what's exciting to me when I go out on these hikes now, and I've learned that it's fun and beautiful to be out there. And then maybe what I really enjoy then is finding a composition that kind of resonates with me a certain way and then examining it from different angles and, and whatnot, like, you know, so for me, those are starting to be clearly the things that I enjoy the most. So what matters now starts looking like self-empathy, like being able to pay attention to my own feelings. And like I said, you know, being a little bit vulnerable here, I was really bad at caring about or paying attention to my own feelings. That was like stupid. That was like not, right, not, so not solving a software problem, right? right. Sounds like an engineer. <laughs> Yeah, right. I had that engineer thing going uh, still and hadn't fully made the, uh, taken the blue pill or whatever and made the crossover. Right, right. So, <laughs> so, so to me, that was the connection, which was, okay, well, yeah, even I can sort of feel it. Like, what do I care about in the current situation I'm in? If this, if, I, if I'm going to make a photograph now, what is it in this scene that I care about? And I think you had mentioned subject and that's, that's great. Cause it's, it, you know, one form of empathy that I think applies really well is like, what, what am I feeling? And therefore, how can I authentically identify even a story I want to tell? And by the way, storytelling is an intrinsic part of design thinking. So oh, that was another okay. aha moment. It's like, oh, I you know, for years, people have talked about when you play a jazz solo, tell a story. I'm not sure what they're talking about. Or like, you know, when you, when you put together a set of photographs, you're telling, tell a story. I didn't actually get it, you know, at the time. And, but in applying design thinking, what I started realizing was what I want to communicate, if it has a lot to do with how I'm feeling about the situation and what I care about and why, and empathy for the subject. And I think I might have a couple examples because that's a little abstract, but empathy for the subject, then 
I'm actually applying design thinking to photography at this point. Right. Yeah, and I'm wondering too, empathy for a subject can take on lots of different forms. You know, it could be having a more curiosity about what is this plant or what is this bird or, you know, how how did these rocks form, you know, like, and then getting that curiosity about the subject then gets you more excited about it. And then in my experience, you become more in tune with it and you make better photographs of it. So I think it completely applies. Yeah, absolutely. I, actually, you probably have lots of ready examples. So, you know, maybe I'll ask you that it doesn't have to be the last time you went out, but some recent time you went out, what, you know, can you recall a subject you were focusing on? Oh, yeah. Well, I just, so I just got back from 10 days in northern Spain. So it's very fresh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, um, I spent a lot of time on this very specific beach that's kind of known for these really interesting abstract patterns and things like that. And I, I got really, really interested in the geology of how those rocks formed. And it just was such a fascinating place. And, you know, I, I was focused more on trying to tell that story of how, like, all the shapes of the rocks. And, I mean, it's literally like this upside-down layered rock that it was, you know, you have layers of sediment. But the on here, it's, like, up like this, but then it's bending. And it's it's, it's super surreal and abstract. So I was super focused on trying to understand how to tell that story. Uh, that's that's a fantastic example. And, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm curious as to, it sounds like at, at some point in the past, you decided you were interested in that type of geology or geology in general. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I was a, uh, when I went to undergrad, my first major was geology. So um, okay. I eventually be, went into psychology, but yeah, I was, I'm, I've always been very fascinated with geology and have, have always had a strong interest in it. So spot on. And so you had already actually gone deep to some degree in college. A little and... bit. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely identify, you know, sedimentary igneous and, um, you know, conglomerate. And then I can understand a little bit about how different rocks form and I can identify some rocks like but I'm, you know, it's rusty. It's it's information that I can sort of tap into. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. So, you know, it feels like in your case, you had uh, some number of years ago, you had actually already identified, hey, here's something I care about. And you had already made the connection of how that can reflect and maybe even foster or enhance passion in your photography. Like you probably don't shoot rocks. You know, you had already made the connection and... You know, in my case, it took it took a while for me to figure out, uh, and this is probably the case for a lot of people, there's an opportunity to figure out, well, given who I am and what I care about, how will that apply to my photography in terms of choosing subjects that I'm more interested in? Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm always drawn to geologic patterns, but I'm also um, really drawn to plants and um, the interaction with plants and their environment and things like that. So yeah, yeah. And why apply. limit yourself, right? You know, um, unless for some reason you're extreme specialist, it seems like, you know, nature photography, here's a wonderful aspect. Like you can learn about aspects of nature for the rest of your life. Exactly. Well, and I'm one of those people, I'm interested in so many different things that 
I don't think I could ever specialize in one thing because I'm so easily distracted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, <know? guess. laughs> I can relate to it. I have a little bit of a story <laughs> along those lines because, um, so I mentioned YouTubes and tutorials and all that. And the one during when the pandemic hit, I decided that, okay, you know, everybody's stuck at home and maybe this has created an opportunity in a certain way or a certain set of ways. And I just bought a photography book that Rachel Talibart put out. I mean, I, I know she appeared on your show maybe multiple times, but at least once. And so I figured, well, you know, she, she does a lot of exhibits and she sells books and prints. I wasn't even sure if she did workshops, but maybe because of the pandemic, when a lot of that, that stuff is temporarily ruined, you know, for a photographer, maybe she's actually teaching lessons now. So I went on her website and sure enough, there was verbiage along the line of, you know, during the pandemic decided to do private tutorials or something like that. So, so, um, I thought, well, this is, you yep. know, this is a great opportunity and it will probably go away. And I think it probably has, uh, you know, when the world turns back on again. So, so basically I signed up for a time slot with her and, and, uh, you know, she, she, you know, I'd figure out, I love her photography and I also had seen her on a number of podcasts and her YouTubes and, you know, she has a background in inst instruction, it's extremely intelligent. So I figure, okay, this is a great opportunity. Like I'm going to learn a lot in one hour. And so my, my first question, which was really for her was actually really <laughs> kind of a stupid one in retrospect was, Hey, I, I watch all this instruction. First, first of all, she's a really good coach. She asked me about my goals. I talked about, well, my goals might be different than other people. My goals is to remain interested in photography the rest of my life. And at some point in the future, probably near, mm. I'll be retired. And how can I stay passionate about photography? And, uh, kind of what that said is the goals, which she helped me with quite a bit. My first question was, well, I've heard from all different directions that you need to specialize and, you know, cause I want to be good. And if you if you get better and better at something, you probably like it more and more. And of course you need to specialize and her answer would. Right. And she's a, exactly she's a like who, who could be sure. more specialized. And she, <laughs> she gave me a totally solid uh, answer with, with zero delay, which is you don't need to specialize whatsoever. There's absolutely no need. In fact, I used examples like, but there's these other people like Ian Plant and Michael Shane Bloom, and they, they just photograph everything. They just come right out. You know, I, I consider the, them both, you know, top of the world class photographers. They just talk about how they just shoot everything and love it. And she said, you know, you don't have to specialize. Just don't even, don't even think about it. Just, just shoot whatever you want. It's not going to hold you back at all. She said she needs to specialize because in her business model, when somebody types in like wave photograph, she's got to be the first hit, you know? So, so that's, that's kind of right. what she needs to be locked into, but it's, it's more of a business model thing than anything else. And I don't have a by design, I don't have a business model for photography. So that, that was a really solid answer. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's dive more into the more kind of personal side of things. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about emotions. So 
How do you know when you've had a true emotional response with your subject, and how do you find ways um, to have that translate into? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and it feels a, it's a little hard to instruct because it's just the feeling. But but if I go back, uh, I'll start top down, but hopefully get to a decent answer of the emotion, which is, I think it was Socrates who 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 said something about an unexamined life is is not worth living. And then I think the summary of that is something along the lines of know thyself. So everything, anything that has to do with that philosophy or even mindfulness, I think has to do with being in touch with yourself and your own emotions. So for years I had tried to be more mindful and I'm one of these people who can't meditate well, cause I, you know, I can't sit there for 20 minutes and be mindful. Oh yeah. I'm the same. I'm, I'm like, I have, I have to go do this. I, I need to go do that. Like, I, I don't yeah, like not doing and, something. <laughs> and so I felt like a failure there, right? It's like, well, how am I going to be in touch with myself and my feelings if I, I mean, come on, you know, like in my mind, I'd like to be a Zen monk and I can't even sit still for five minutes and, and, and concentrate. So uh, what I learned though, were some other techniques, uh, and this isn't the only way to get in touch with your feelings, but what will work for me was you know what, uh, you can have a mindfulness experience just looking around and noticing three things. It's like one exercise, three things. What do I see? I see a microphone that's not plugged in. I see a water bottle, you know, stuff like that. You can have a one minute breathing break and just pay attention to your breathing. It doesn't have to be 20 minutes of pranayama or something like that, which I can't really do either. <laughs> um, but you know, it's amazing and you can, you can actually feel yourself change. And, and this one thing I noticed very early on, so, I mean, the shorter answer is just about noticing. It's like giving yourself permission to really pay attention to yourself. Cause I, I used to think things like that were selfish and ridiculous. And then I started realizing, no, they're actually quite worthwhile mm. and they'll eventually maybe even make me a better person who knows. What helped out was looking at short mindfulness exercises and then understanding what can get me to a place where I'm actually more in touch with my emotions. And like I mentioned before, I, I realized that, oh, I should just go out hiking and take pictures. That's what, that's what the, this crop of uh, largely British Landscape for Duckford seemed to be doing uh, out in the Lake District, and boy, that boy, that looks like fun. And I've got, I've got the beach forty-five minutes away, and I've got, you know, redwood and a drone forest thirty-five minutes away. I should do that. And then the first thing I noticed was I, I started studying. Okay, I like when people take long exposures, you know, at the, at the beach, and I noticed that I was totally in a flow state. Like just, just setting, just putting the camera in bulb mode and setting my three minute timer on my iPhone and just waiting was all of a sudden I realized I was more relaxed than I've been in years. So that was one, one identification. It's like, and after oh, a while wow, okay. I started to not even necessarily like super long exposure, seascape, seascape photographs, but I liked the feeling I got <laughs> when doing them. And I started realizing, I wonder what else I could feel. And that evolved towards, hey, maybe I won't even take out my camera and shoot anything. 
until I see something that's fairly exciting to me. So then it became more training towards what's, what's actually exciting to me. This may not work for other types of photography. Like some people, you know, it's, it's a dark thing, right? They're photographing a disaster or pollution or whatever. But for me, just focusing on, I mean, it's a little shallow. I, I largely focus on what do I find beautiful, right? When I'm out on a hike. Uh, I'm mostly the same way. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, it's wonderful, right? It's just, it's not for everybody, but, but I think it's wonderful. So all I had to learn to do was honor my feeling of what I liked instead of like, conversely, at one point I got some coaching of, you know, Jeff, you, you should not care what people think of your photograph. What you think of your image is all that matters. And then once I got that through my head, I started to realize that, okay, if I can just be in touch with what I like to shoot versus what I don't like to shoot, that might be actually the only emotional connection I need to at least to get started uh, in terms of producing images I like. I love that. And I'm curious, how does this tie into um, figuring out what our photography should be about? Because you said mostly capturing beauty, but I'm curious if you've had any aspirations more than, for it more broad more than, than capturing that. beauty is that what you're asking about or less more or less broad i mean maybe you know that, right I mean, that's yeah broad, that, that but... is broad uh, <laughs> the other aspect of, of what motivates me here is just learning and and i you know i went through another a number of things in corporate life uh that had to do with like strength finder and like what are your strengths and what do you care about and i found about for myself that I, oh, right. yeah, a couple yeah. things called one called input, one called learning, which is more of an obvious title are strengths for me, not meaning that I'm brilliant or anything, but meaning that that's what gives me energy. So, so what keeps me pretty broad is that, and it's the opposite of the Rachel Talibar business model type situation, which is I can just like I, on my website, I've got, well, now I've got generative AI images. I've got macro photography. I've got flower ah. photography. I've got, you know, wide angle landscapes, just, just, you know, aerial from, from Hawaii, right? Like I've just wanted to try everything. Cause for me, what's energizing is the learning. And there's just an endless number of things that I actually find mm -hmm. interesting. Cause I like the learning part of it as well as the doing, especially the doing has to be gotcha. as, is associated with being out in nature. Cause I found like, I like shooting cities if we're on vacation. We were re recently in the Netherlands and you know, they have beautiful canals and windmills and obviously, and that was fun, but, mm -hmm. um, I'd still rather be learning all different aspects of nature photography. So for me, I'm, it's kind of makes sense to, to be very, very broad. But for someone else, uh, I think focusing down, getting more and more specific, if this is their strength and if this is what really gets them going, then I can imagine them being in tune with that and getting more and more specific and going deeper, uh, deeper within a subgenre or whatever could be the thing to do. And honestly, they, that would, that's probably what would make them the best in the world, right? right. Uh, I mean, I have to admit that's there's a real advantage right. to that. And again, it's, it, it's, again, it's like, are you the best 
wave photographer in the world, or are you the best macro photographer in the world? But for me, that doesn't seem to make sense. What seems to make more sense is uh, being out in nature and trying to learn more and more. And it kind of goes back to know thyself. You know, you've learned that about yourself, that that's what you enjoy the most. And you know that you have a, an attraction to learning and broad experimentation. And so like harnessing that strength seems to be Absolutely. a good way to I don't go. know if you, I mean, to what extent do you see that in yourself when, when you think about your photography? Oh, it, everything you said resonates with me as well. I mean, I know what I like and what I don't like. You know, I love mountains and, uh, you know, I, I've tried almost everything and I know the things that I love and I know the things that I'm like, yeah, it's sort of okay. I, my, my, one of my favorite things is just trying to like unlock a puzzle. Like if I come across the scene that I know has photographic potential, I'm just trying to figure out how to, you know, arrange the elements so that it makes sense and, you know, conveys the right story or message. To me, that's super fun. And so, you know, I'm in tune with what I enjoy doing and the things that I love about nature. And I just yeah, try to focus perfect. on those things, no pun intended. Yeah. Well, I'm curious for you, uh, what roles have practice and failure each played in your photography journey? So for me, yeah, it's easy to talk about my experience. Um, don't know how generally it applies, but coming from a music background, uh, a couple things occurred to me early on. Like, honestly, one of the first things that occurred to me is just knowing how to work your camera is actually fairly easy compared to learning to play trumpet or cello or something like, like, you know, like on a musical instrument, you might spend the first five to seven years just even being competent, having a great sound or something like that. And if it, right. and if it takes you seven years to learn the exposure triangle on your <laughs> DSLR, that's, that's probably uh, not good. Right. I mean, so there's some fundamental differences in terms of practice. So it's interesting. You just talked about composition and unlocking the puzzle and, and finding the keys within the environment. Um, it it to me, I, I'm probably oversimplifying what you're talking about, but to me, that's all like light and composition. And, and those, to me, those, those are the more complicated aspects of the art that can be practiced forever for the rest of our lives. Yeah. So, so to me, exactly, yeah. there's always something to practice. Uh, I mean, there's a really old famous musical analogy where many years ago that there was a guy named Pablo Casals and I think he was regarded as the top cellist in the world and he still practiced five hours a day and they asked him why, you know, he's probably performing two hours every night and practicing five hours a day and he's already the best cellist in the world. And his answer was, well, I, th I think I'm getting better. It's just a, it's just a terrific mindset, right? It's like to realize that if you have a growth mindset at all, then that means you're kind of fostering the notion of practice as something that gives you more energy and helps you learn and grow. And you're, you're, it's, it's like a flywheel, right? It's like a wonderful thing. So I try to foster my interest in, in practice as much as possible. Yeah. And for me, like I would encourage photographers because a lot, you know, a lot, a lot of landscape and nature photographers have this idea in their head that they're, 
there's only specific, you know, they can only shoot in like golden hour and the light has to be perfect and you have to have amazing clouds. And, and if it's not good, then you just not, you're not even going to take your camera out. And I, what I would encourage people to do is like, even if the conditions aren't what you envisioned, you should take your camera out and practice and try different ideas and different techniques and arranging elements and composing and like, okay, yeah, you might not get the photograph that you had in your mind's eye, but you're going to become a better photographer in the process, you know? And, like, that's more important than getting that amazing image that you had. I don't know you know, if you think about this consciously or uh, subconsciously, but uh, how do you... Do you think about practicing composition? Uh, oh, yeah, all the time. Um, I'm constantly um, looking at scenes, and I'm trying to figure out, like, if it if there's a better way to compose it than the, what I've originally found and like, what do I like about the composition that I found and what do I dislike and how can I improve upon it? And like, Oh, and a lot of times for me, it's, you know, placement of objects or shapes or like the relationship and the sizes of those shapes. And, you know, like I get slightly better at it every year, but it's, I feel like that's probably the one part of photography that, I can always, 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 always get better at. It's yeah, just, absolutely. It's just a good and, habit. You know, and, and what you were talking about, to me, that holds the elements of learning from failure. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think, uh, so, so to me, the value of failure is learning. And then failing a lot fast is learning fast. And, and it's, it's, Almost, uh, I don't know if this is universal, but for me, it's it's the best way to learn by far because otherwise I think I'm fine, right? Like, I, you know, if I don't fail, I don't really have a reason to, to learn or to change. And digital photography is actually just amazing. Like how, how, like how many iterations you get, like oh, how many, yeah. you know, how many feedback. failures you can get so quickly, so inexpensively. So it, it's just amazing. I, it might be why so many people can, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but if, it seems like there's thousands, if not millions of good photographers out there. And I, I imagine it's because uh, it's so yeah. easy to get so many reps in and fail tremendously so many times so quickly and, and therefore learn. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it's I think that's why it's such an accessible art form from the, especially from the technical side, because you have instant feedback on your image, mm -hmm. um, unless you're shooting film, which, you know, good on you, I guess. <laughs> I, li I like getting that instant feedback because I like, uh, you know, understanding how I can improve a photograph, either whether it be composition or exposure or whatever, so, or focus. I mean, there's all kinds things you can improve in an image so yeah and, it, and to me um, failure it's it's the embracing failure some people in the innovation space try to call it uh fail forward and it, what what i like to do is is just reframe anyway. the whole thing as learning and it's not even failure because it's a i mean the connotations are so thick and powerful it's hard to get out of your mind it's like you're not failing you just learn like and what's the definition right. of a bad experiment it's one you didn't learn anything from. So, so to me, it, it's the heart, uh, right. it's at the heart of all learning and, and the speed is everything. Cause if you, if you can only fail once, like if you can run one experiment a year, you know, good luck to you. That's, that's pretty horrible. Or when it, at one point I decided I wanted to learn infrared photography and I also decided I wanted to get a medium format mm. 
film camera. So it was, it was a very ridiculous thing to do, right? Like I, I got, uh, I had the, the right black and white film and I had the film camera that's this big old six by six Bronica and I had the, the filter on it and I was trying to learn the camera and infrared and, and how to focus infrared all at the same time. And then I realized I'd shoot a roll and I'd wait a week <laughs> and a half to get the results back and it would cost money. And, you know, I'd open up the envelope and there'd be a pure black frame and <laughs> maybe a few that came out. And, and then I started reading <laughs> articles of other people who were much more intelligent than me saying, oh yeah, I just, I only shoot infrared digital. It's just too hard with film. So it's like the speed of learning is, is everything. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, maybe this is a good segue to talk about that third piece that you had introduced earlier on, which is narrow and rapid experimentation. I'm curious how those two things might translate in our field craft to create better photographs. So, so. You know, my example would be if we can reframe photography as solving, I use myself as an example. My, the problem I have, uh, let's just say the problem I'm trying to solve is my photograph sucks, right? So there's a problem to solve. So the, the best way to, to solve this is to iterate quickly with different attempts. And so I, so you can turn the failures into success. So you need some form of measurement. You need some form of inexpensive, hopefully rapid ways of trying different approaches. And, you know, in a nutshell, I'll stop there because I want to hear your example, but in a nutshell, that's, that's the only way to get to a real solution. Like how did I go from that ridic ridiculously bad infrared photo that didn't make any sense and was composed wrong and was exposed wrong and focused wrong to, to a good infrared photo, right? I had to learn my way there with failure and iterations, you know, within an experiment. Yeah, my example is, um, so I was, as I was saying, I was on the northern coast of Spain this last week, and I we spent a lot of time photographing in mixed conditions. So it would be like drizzling, and then it'd be sunny, and then it'd be overcast, but that'd be like within okay. 90 seconds, all in that time frame. And um, I was shooting a lot of these scenes where you'd have these crashing waves hitting this wall, and um, it was like high tide, and I wanted to... I found this really cool composition where I had these uh, these waves in the background that were like flowing through all these rocks. And then there was another rock that was like the face of this cliff here that all, had all these grooves in it where the water just kept eating it away over like over the you know decades and decades of time. And I wanted to like get both of those in the same frame with this, the, just the right amount of streaking water going through each part of it. And so what I found myself doing is experimenting with tons of different shutter speeds and um, tons of different ND filters and different variations of ND filters and um, just trying to get the exact shutter speed. And of course, like the sun would come out, so then I'd have to switch filters or I'd have to change my ISO or whatever. But it was a lot of fun just experimenting with different settings just to get the exact look and feel that I had in my mind of what I wanted the scene yeah. to look like. Perfect example. Yeah, I remember the first uh, probably instruction I ever got or saw on, on Seascape, uh, you know, shooting waves and, and, you know, the speed of water and whatnot. I was, I was so excited when uh, I can't remember who it was, whether we're talking about. And, you know, I've tried all sorts of different shutter speeds and I've taken a hundred different photos. And I thought, 
that's awesome. That's, <laughs> that's what should happen. Cause I, I mean, I'll ask you like, what, if you had been forced, if you had forced yourself to just decide on a shutter speed and an exposure and a filter and, you know, an aperture and whatever, and only take two shots, what would have happened? Oh, I would have had a relatively boring, like super long exposure where everything was silky and smooth, which isn't, I don't mind that look sometimes, but for this particular scene, it needed, I needed something else. So, you know, I, I it depends on the subject and what, you're, what you have in mind, but for this scene, I needed something that kind of showed the, it just showed the power of what was happening in the scene without totally blowing out what was happening. So I, I needed there to be enough action, but not, I didn't want it to look all like frozen either. So it was like this super in-between spot. And I'm yeah, sure I've guessed Exactly. Wrong. Yeah, in the <laughs> innovation know? space, you know, people yeah. talk about, look, you know, you gotta be aware of your assumptions and then the whole game is to invalidate your assumptions. So, so like in, in your example there, you, you made some wild assumptions about what you, what was going to look the best. And those assumptions are generally just always wrong. You know, it just can't compare to trying a bunch of things, right. especially if it's fast and inexpensive to try a bunch of things. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. I would love for you to talk a little bit about um, how you think about photography as a metaphor. Yeah, photography makes a, a great metaphor for, for people thinking about, like, for example, product innovation or doing something for people. Like anything that it has a physical manifestation, like sports or animals or <laughs> photography, obviously, is rooted in physics at one, one level, um, help quite a bit. So... In fact, I've been exposed to this when I worked at Apple years and years ago. Um, we had a consultant come in and it was like some kind of training, but he pulled out uh, a slideshow, you know, and started talking about photography and said, like, what you get to do is remember, look at things from four different perspectives. And then he showed, you know, a scene shot from four different perspectives. And then I can't remember if he went into zooming, but that's another analogy that's quite useful, right? Like you could, it could be the same scene, but obviously, you know, you let's imagine, I don't know, yeah, like a 18 to 200 lens or something like it. You know, there are so many different ways of looking at right. the subjects, uh, you know, taking a different view within the scene. So I think that's quite useful for people to to, to think about, okay, it's all about, the optics of a situation, that's one metaphor. It's about differences in perspective. It's about differences in lighting or reflection or zoom in, zoom out. That's literally a tool we use sometimes in innovation, which is, okay, now let's zoom, zoom out and look more at the broader market. Let's zoom way in and look at one customer, Matt, like what does he need? So things like that, uh, some of that's cliched and trite. Some of the less cliched ones are, I. We did a little lunchtime fun thing once at work where I showed people intentional camera motion. It's like, you know, one person's, you know, she used to be a photojournalist, I think actually for the New York Times. And she was saying, yeah, this is really cool because I, I, photographs need to be sharp. 
And what you were talking about the whole time was the complete opposite, right? So just the notion that there are things in photography or art that get you looking at opposites is actually quite useful in terms of creative thinking. Right. Yeah, I actually um, had an example like that on my trip to Spain. I'm trying to remember what it was, but I, I, had, found, I had found a scene that um, there must have been, I think it was like wildflowers. And they didn't look super interesting, like sharp and in focus. But when I threw them out of focus, they looked really interesting with the water that they were reflecting in. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to do that. And so it's, for me, it was just like, uh, if you just try to make everything sharp, sometimes Absolutely. you miss out on a better photograph. That, that's another innovation yeah. lesson, which is you have so. to be courageous because there's probably a lot of people that would, it's like, no, I, I, you know, we talked about this, Matt. It's got to be front to back sharp. <laughs> it's got to be sharp. Right. Why yeah, didn't that, you that focus that, that whole scene? What's yeah. wrong with you? <laughs> right. Yeah. There's no such thing as wrong, man. I, just, I do the opposite now. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to do what seems interesting and fun. And if the end result is cool, that's that's nice. I mean, a lot of times the results aren't good, but I don't care. It's it's like you're innovating and you're trying new things and you're building mm -hmm. uh, on your way. Totally. Yeah, all that, the so. forces just pull us to the yeah. status quo. Like, And, and that's not going to be, right. you know, yeah, that's yeah. suboptimal for creativity and innovation. Well, so I'm curious then in your work with um, creatives as a coach, how have these approaches in photography helped you be a better coach in the innovative industries? So, one thing that's been really helpful is I think it's where where I started describing how I even started to like photography, which was it's all about learning. So I got empathy for people learning things because then I remember back, oh yeah, my first year of learning about photography, you know, everything was HDR, the saturation slider <laughs> was all the way to the right, and just like everybody does, right? And it's like. Yeah, well, it's quite clearly I really sucked and I had no idea. So, so one, one thing just, you know, more in the category of learning, like the learning ladder was experiencing for myself what it was to, to go from, you know, unconsciously incompetent to, you know, that whole progression to where you're finally unconsciously competent and what that takes. And then therefore what we're putting people through when we try to coach them in innovation. We're basically telling them to do things that are unnatural and might put them behind schedule and may not get them the biggest bonus. And, you know, and there's all sorts of problems with, with the environment just based right. on human nature, all sorts of reasons, like we just talked about that would pull you back towards front to back sharp, you know, status quo, got to do things the way I've always done this, you know, I work with professionals who have had great careers and, and done things a certain way for the past five, 10, 20 years. Those ways actually don't work any longer. Uh, just, just think about generative AI actually and, and a right. lot of jobs out there. So, um, but there's, there are no cues that tell them to work differently uh, until maybe it's too late. So, so a lot of what we do is, is try, we, we have to have stories right. and metaphors and examples to to get people to work differently than they ever did before. Uh, and 
learning photography and using photography as a metaphor and thinking about how people absorb new concepts, like the way I had absorbed new concepts about something I was really bad at, uh, has been useful. Awesome. All right. Well, last couple of questions. Uh, the first one is, um, would love for you to tell us about your books on innovation. You know, the, the only new thing coming out and just came out last week was a second edition of an innovation book that I co-authored. And the interesting thing, at least to me about that was, uh, it's called the entrepreneur's journey. So it's about innovating within an organization. So, so entrepreneurism being entrepreneurial, I, I, I believe Steve Jobs gets the credit for inventing that word or twisting the entrepreneur word into entrepreneur. And so, you know, this may, it may not be generally interesting to photographers, but, but if you innovate within an organization, that's what that book's targeted at. And, and the fun part of the second edition is my co-author is, is originally from South Africa and we decided to make an international version of the book. So we got two more co-authors who are both business professors in South Africa, and they changed the book to be more Pan-Africa oriented. So the parables and business examples in there are all from oh, wow. uh, across the continent, you know, so, but generally more internationally interesting. Um, so that's, that's the new book coming out. And I could give you a link to that again. I'm not really selling it here. It's not a photography book, yeah, yeah. but it is on the topic of how to innovate better. Which I think we've proven relates directly to creativity and probably making better photographs. Yeah. So I think it thank, is relevant. Thank you for that. Yeah, there, there short, is yeah. a, there's a six point model in there. And one of the points is uh, design thinking. Another one of the points is experimentation. So, you know, that, that's part of the overall environment for innovating well. The uh, photography book, it, it's something I, it. I put out self-produced about a year ago. And, you know, I, I could give you a link to that. It's available on Amazon. And what I did is I really, put, you know, in terms of what I'm excited about, I, I do love the coastline. So I call it along the coast. And it's mainly black and white. I just got into that vibe. I was also, um, and still am a lover of infrared photography. So of course, inspired by Ansel Adams, like everybody <laughs> and whatnot. So it's a fairly, you know, a lot of, of course. IR fairly high contrast shots of the coast, but you know, we get a lot of really interesting clouds and fog around here. So, uh, that's, that's the book on photography <clears throat> that I have out. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. All right, last question. Yeah, you so recommend? I spent uh, some time out on the the Frames Magazine uh, Facebook group at, at one point. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> kind of a hellscape. Yeah, I I uh, but but uh, <laughs> oh man, yeah, we could talk about social social media in general. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, so so there's everything out there. Oh my gosh, I, I just went through a whole thing with the uh, astrophotography group out there. But uh, which which is is can really get rough on people. But it but um, I you know, I really enjoyed interaction with a number of people out there. So so the people people I've recommended are people I don't think I've ever seen on your show or any show that's that's kind of like at your you know your your uh, podcast level. 
by people I, who I thought were making very interesting photographs in a creative way and also had interesting things to say. So one is a guy who he has a background uh, in design and has worked a lot in, or I think his whole career has been visual design, uh, graphical design, which I always find interesting too, because because I'm kind of an engineer who's probably a frustrated graphic designer initially. But uh, so a guy named Shane <laughs> McGeehan, and he's done quite a bit of uh, creative work. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know how much he pursues photography as opposed to graphic design, but he 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 gave me a lot of uh, interesting support and, and feedback and encouragement out on Frames Magazine. Um, another one is Andrew Hill, and he uh, yeah talk about talk about not worrying about sharp focus. So so he's a landscape photographer. Um, he must be in the Lake District. It has a look to it, but a lot of his photographs uh, are very, very interesting in terms of how uh, they're they're very soft and artistic, and and just have that very warm feeling with rolling hills and sheep, and I just love that. Oh, I'm and is sorry. It, it's Adrian. Andrew or Adrian? Thank you, Adrian Hill. Yeah. Adrian, okay. Adrian Hill, yeah, no I, I've really enjoyed his yeah, okay. photographs. Again, I, I haven't heard him on a show, so I don't know how, if he enjoys talking about photography, but his photographs are, are fairly unique and, and just a lot of fun to look at. And then Lynn Blouch, uh, I mentioned doing ICM, so intentional camera motion. I, I think she's done a number of things, but some people just have that, that feel where where what comes out is is so impressionistic and so smooth. I wonder how did they do that? And mine don't quite look like that. It's uh, anyway. I think she has a an especially excellent right. touch for uh, very subtle uh, ICM images. So I'd recommend her. Nice. All right. Well, Jeff, this has been awesome, and I I think I think people can definitely get a lot out of design thinking and applying it to their approach to photography and fantastic yeah images. thanks very much matt i really enjoyed talking with you about all these topics well thank you to jeff for the wonderful chat on the podcast today i really enjoyed it and i hope that our listeners did as well keep up the great work if you enjoyed our chat and you find value in this podcast please consider supporting my work on patreon I operate on the value for value model, which means that I provide this content to you for free with the expectation that you pay me what you think it's worth to you. Only you know what that number is and only you know what your budget is. So we have lots of tiers that you can pick from to support us. Since photography is now my full-time job, I'd really appreciate your support. Please go to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen to join or look for a link in the show notes. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.